Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I am Tracy. And I'm Brian. And we are so excited to announce that we have had our first donation for the show. Yes, that's awesome. Thank you, Jessica. Yes, Jessica. You're awesome, Jessica. Jessica bought us a lovely, brand new, shiny microphone that makes us sound like we're not in the bottom of a well. Yes, it it sound it sounds really, really, really good. Uh, uh, a very welcome uh, donation from Jessica Starnes of uh, Babylon. No, Area Five Hundred Four. Area Five Hundred Four yeah. used to be called Babylon Five Hundred Four. Yes, which, but most importantly, Jessica is a librarian, and she knows that our podcast, we try to be as factual as possible. We try to bring people knowledge of the city. Not always true crime, but we, as if you are a regular listener, then you know that we do a historical edition every month where we try to go over something within the city that's or why it's famous kind of babbling on here but but in the pursuit of knowledge jessica has you know we're kindred spirits in that way yeah i believe that she still worked she the location where she's uh headquartered because she's she's has a a a pretty high position she does yeah she's she's very important in the library scene in uh in louisiana but I believe she's at the the main the main branch for New Orleans Public Library uh, downtown, which I believe it's in the basement where they have uh, considerable archives of New Orleans uh, historic. Uh, Either she's still there or she works. I think she works between different branches. Actually, uh, I think so because she, well, she is beyond like just a, a a librarian who stays in one library she goes and i think within a, like a certain region but jessica thank you so very much thank you for helping us in our pursuit of truth and knowledge on this podcast thank you jessica and i also want to say that we are recording in a well it's in the same location but in a different room where now recording in the back of our house, which hopefully will cut down on a lot of the background noise. Hopefully. Yes, because editing can take some time. And with everything that we've got going on right now, I just wish I had more time to actually sit down and edit. Like how when we were first doing the podcast, I did have that time. Now I just don't. So hopefully this will make the editing process a little less painful. Yep, hopefully it will. And of course, dear listeners, thank you so very much for sticking with us throughout all this time. And Brian, you had mentioned something earlier this week that stuck in my brain where you said that was it only 26% of podcasts get past four episodes? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, look at us. Here we are just past our 25th episode. I'm very proud of our milestone. Oh, yeah, me too. And, of course, listeners, if you've been with us all this time, we ask that you recommend us to a friend, a family member, a teacher, a student, whoever you want. And, of course, reviews are always helpful. It helps our visibility and helps us get more listeners on this podcast. Oh, yes, that's that's always welcome and, and very much appreciated. 
And as always, thank you to Lucy who runs our TikTok. Thank you, Lucy. Well, now that we have all that housekeeping out of the way, Brian, you know that August is typically a cruel month for New Orleans. It's hot, school is starting, bugs are at their peak. And while we hope that the tropics stay silent, this is typically the busiest part of the tropical weather season. Yes, it is. Unfortunately, we're not expecting anything this week. Yes, and let's hope it stays that way. Let's hope that the Gulf remains too hostile for hurricane development. Yes, we don't need another hurricane either. Or anyone, really. Right. I think the only tolerable one was Hurricane Zeta, and that was because it dragged a cold front, a, a cool front behind it. It was in October. That hurricane was in and out. It was very fast. And even though we were without power for five days, it was tolerable because of the cool front. The weather was perfect after the hurricane. Yeah, so quite true. Although, I still remember <laughs> sleeping wrapped in a towel because we had no air conditioning. Well, that was a different hurricane. That was Hurricane Isaac. Oh, oops. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that was in August as well. So there you go. We, we always have hurricane trouble in August. You know it's bad when a, a few hurricanes become a blur within just a few years. Well, that's storm. I mean, that that's, how, that's part of what it is living down here. It does come with the territory. But today we're not talking about... No, did you have something to add? Oh, yeah, yeah, I uh, noticed I was in error when I quoted, uh, like, knots to miles per an hour. Oh. It's actually one knot equals, I believe it's at 1.15 miles per an hour. So if you're going about 90 knots, it's about 100 miles an hour. Okay, well, okay. So when I did those high-speed takeoffs in the Cessnas, I was taking off at 100 miles an hour, which is why I was gaining lift very quickly. And, of course, you are you are referring back to our episode on the Pan Am Flight 759. Yes. From a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, Brian. I'm very glad that you uh, made amends to our audience, who I'm sure are very angry about your error. Oh yes, all the all the pilots among our audience were, were pretty pretty upset about that for me getting the the conversion of knots to miles per hour. You know, closer it was closer than I remembered. So, with that in mind, this month on the podcast we're going to be discussing some heavy topics. As always, we will handle the content with sensitivity and we will give all the appropriate trigger warnings. And Brian, are you ready to finish this cruel summer on the podcast? Yes. Very good. Today we are stepping outside outside of the New Orleans area just a little bit and heading into Bayou Country. From 1997 until 2006, the bodies of over 20 young men were found scattered across six rural parishes. It is noteworthy that many of them were missing either one or both of their shoes. In 1997, the body of 19-year-old David Mitchell was found in a drainage ditch off Highway 3160 in St. Charles Parish in Hondell, Louisiana. This location is about 30 minutes outside of New Orleans. Police thought that David had drowned, but his family insisted that wasn't true. They, from the beginning, believed that he was murdered. What police and investigators did not know at the time was that David's death was the harbinger of several killings that became known as the Kenner 
cluster murders. A second man named Gary Pierre, who was 20, was found in St. Charles Parish a, a few months after David Mitchell's death. He had been strangled, and the St. Charles Sheriff's Office paid Michael Baden, chief forensic pathologist of the New York State Police and the host of the HBO TV documentary Autopsy, to examine the body. And Michael Baden found evidence that Gary Pierre had been bound before he was strangled. Then in 1998, the body of 30-year-old Larry Branson was found about 100 feet from where David Mitchell was found. And it was at this time that a pattern started to emerge and it was apparent that a serial killer was hunting, killing, and dumping young men in the area. Of course, many questions were springing up at that time, mainly who was responsible for this. Well, I'm not going to keep you anybody in suspense. Uh, the person who was behind those killings is a man named Ronald Dominique. He grew up in Thibodeau, Louisiana, and there is nothing in his early history to indicate that he would become a serial killer, or at least nothing that has been made public. His teenage years were active, and he filled the school and he filled and was filled with school activities. He was a member of the school choir and the glee club club and he liked to perform. As an adult, he lived a double life. He resided in a trailer park and to his neighbors he was mild-mannered and meek. By day he helped neighbors with chores and he would help look, look after their children. He was overweight and he used a cane and told neighbors that he suffered from a heart condition. However, by night he performed on stage as a Patti LaBelle impersonator at several gay clubs throughout the area. The people within that scene had a different view of Ronald Dominique. They saw him as off-putting and felt uncomfortable around him. Brian, what do you think of that? Well, he's uh, obviously engaging in his hobby on a private basis. The average person who you see in their neighborhood is not necessarily engaging in their hobby as they're going about their daily business. Of course, this this is no different for someone whose hobby is, uh, you know, killing people, murdering people. Right, right, and it's it's not even. I mean, you know, like even if you're an of of an impersonator, that's a great hobby to have. I really think it is a great hobby to have, and what many people may not understand is that the reason why impersonators even exist in the first place is because typically the actual performers, you know, they're in New York City, they're in California, not always accessible at that time to be able to attend one of their shows because this was well before the internet as we know it today. So you would have people who would impersonate them and that was the closest way that you would get to see somebody perform. Yeah, just like you have that, uh, you have a few Beatles groups, right? That 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 are like that. Where and Judy Garland performed uh, impersonators and Liza Minnelli impersonators, Marilyn Monroe impersonators, all all sorts. It's a whole thing. Whereas you know you, you can find people who can sing, yeah, uh, in you know an identical fashion to certain classic performers. But of course, what you're not going to find are people who are just as creative. Right, innovative as those original performers. 
Right. And even as accepting as those uh, impersonation clubs can be, I feel like if you find somebody off-putting, there's probably a good reason for it, right? Assuming it's not uh, related to bigotry. No, no. What I was saying is that if you're if, if you're in that scene, right, then other people around you are also into that. So you have like oh, this common right. ground, okay. right? Yeah. Okay. But if so, if you find somebody in that scene who's weird and maybe gives you an off feeling, I mean, you know, there's probably a good reason for that. Sometimes it's someone like that in in the same hobby as you that that's an indication of hiding something. Right. In the years before he started killing, Ronald Dominique was arrested and released seven times for minor offenses. Most notably, he was arrested for telephone harassment in the 1980s. <laughs> you know, what exactly is telephone harassment? Is that where you would just keep calling somebody up at all hours of the night? And... Well, I, I, I believe that would be something like that, but I was thinking about crank calls where... No, I, I'm not 70s and the 80s sure. were uh, the golden era of, of crank calling. That was before caller ID. Right. It was before caller ID. It was before... It was before um, Call Block, Star 69. Those are things that I grew up with where you could, at the very least, find the last number that had called your house. You would Star 69 it. However, there was also Star 67 where you could block the number. So, so people wouldn't know that it was you calling them. Of course, this was back, but back before we had smartphones. Yeah, back yes. when my sister and I would, would crank call a variety of businesses. Oh, I, I did that too in the nineties until they started calling me back because they finally got caller ID. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ronald Dominique had to pay seventy-five dollars for his telephone harassment crime. That's what it basically amounted to. Okay. <laughs> Now, back then, that's like a traffic ticket. Well, funny you bring that up because following that incident, Dominique was arrested and charged with the DUI. And again, he was simply only fined. He did not see any jail time from it. Wow. So, that's, uh, well, typically, with a DUI, the first offense does not typically result in jail time unless. So you were saying about DUIs and fines, Brian? Yes, well, a fine for a DUI is typical for a first offense where there's no injury involved oh, okay. or no death involved or no accident involved. That's your typical DUI where someone is pulled over during, you know, the, the routine traffic stop and the officer determines that they're drunk, very likely intoxicated. Right. Now, more seriously, in the August of 1996, Dominique was arrested and charged with forcible rape. The victim who accused him is not named, but he told police that he went to Dominique's trailer for sex. Dominique wanted to tie him up, but when the victim refused, Dominique became violent. The victim escaped out of a window, and witnesses came forward after saying, after saying that they saw this man escape running through the parking lot, screaming for help, but they thought it was just, you know, a joke or a kinky sex game. Not cool. That is not cool. No, and that, that's not normal behavior. It's really not. I mean, I know, I'm, I'm just going to touch on this, I mean, I know a lot of people who are into kinky things, and 
none of that involves them running out of the uh, like crawling out of a window and running down the street screaming for help. No. Yes. So they didn't realize that this was a rape victim who was running for his life. Unfortunately, when the case was brought to trial, the victim was nowhere to be found to testify against him and the case was dropped. So he got away with it. He got away with that. Mm-hmm. Now, because he got away with that, uh, Brian, would you be surprised to learn that it made him even more bold? No, not, not at all. These be this, this is not a most rapists. It's not a one-time thing. That's correct. Unfortunately, he also realized that if he didn't murder his victims, he might he might not get away with rape the next time. So, less than a year after those rape charges were dropped, David Mitchell was murdered. Like many serial killers, Dominique selected victims that were largely seen as disposable. The men were either sex workers, gay, black, or drug addicts. And his hunting grounds were usually gay bars. He would offer to buy or sell drugs and get the men to go back with him to his home. But in some cases, he would flash a photo of a beautiful woman who he said was his wife. He would claim that she liked to have sex with black men. And if they came back to his place, they would get to be with her. Once Dominique had them in his trailer, he would ask to tie up his victims. If the man believed that there that he was there to have sex with a woman, Dominique would say that his wife was shy and wanted her partners to be tied up. Doesn't that sound just suspicious as hell? Yeah, that that's uh, not something. I mean, even if you're cruising bars for that kind of thing, uh, when you first meet someone, that that's not exactly what you want to do is be be tied up that that's very that's extremely sketchy very suspicious should set off red flags i also feel like you should build into that with somebody you know maybe not necessarily on your first date or or even on your first time having sex you know give it a couple of times yeah just just to say yeah i mean first first date first time in someone's house don't don't do it don't do something crazy yeah yeah don't do something crazy that that's that's a very good advice Now, interestingly enough, if the men refused to be tied up, Dominique would let them live. It is not known if he had consensual sex or not with those particular men. However, if the men would consent to be tied up, the mask of the meek and sweet Ronald Dominique would drop completely. Once bound and helpless, he was free to do whatever he liked to them. And just want to also point out that when a serial killer is killing when he's in that process that is the real person and the only people who get to see that real person don't really get to, don't always live to tell about it no it's it's up to a detective to find that real person yes in the wakes in the wake of hurricanes katrina and rita during the summer of 2005 three more bodies were found It was at this time that several law enforcement agencies banded together to form a task force under the overall direction of the Louisiana Attorney General's office. While they had plenty of victims and evidence, they were short on suspects. However, just a year later, a solid lead would come from a man who reported to his parole officer in 2006. 
He told the officer that he'd been tied up by an older man in poor physical health for sex. And he told the officer that the man's name was Ronald Dominique. And he said that Dominique had gotten violent with him, but he was able to talk. Somehow he was able to get out of it. He said that Dominique threatened to kill him, and it was not known why or how the man was able to escape from the trailer with his life. But in the end, this would bring an end to the killings. The parole officer passed the information to the task force, who thankfully took it seriously. And when they checked into his history, they found out about the previous rape charge. Ronald Dominique somehow became aware that he was being investigated, and he tried to hide out at a homeless shelter in Homa, in Homa, Louisiana, but he was quickly found and arrested. He voluntarily pr provided a DNA sample, which linked him to the murders of 19-year-old Mon... Um, sorry, Manuel Reed, and 27-year-old Oliver LeBanks in Kenner, Louisiana. A video store owner said that Ronald Dominique was a frequent customer. He would rent videos for his nieces and nephews, and she said that he was very friendly. She knew that he was gay, and he would tell her about some of the dates he went on. She said that one day he came in and told her that the police suspected him of being the Homa area serial, serial killer. And she says, oh, well, if you're the serial killer, then I'm the Queen of England. So, huh. I mean, I, I mean, I get it, right? Like, how well do you really know your neighbors? How well do you really know your customers? Well, nobody, um, run, nobody has a serial killer club. Well, you know, so, you know, <laughs> serial killers don't get together as, as, a, as a club. You know, at a public library meeting room. Right, or, right. Or, or, you know, at a coffee house. So they're they're not they're not really open about who they are. It's a very secret hobby. And it's obvious to me that the the biggest reason why he he murdered his helpless victims was because of his physical disability. Well, that's if he really had a disability. I do wonder about that because if you have to, if you have a, a heart condition and if you have to use a cane, could you dance on stage and perform as a Patty LaBelle impersonator? I mean, is that I, I don't know. Is that possible? You know, it, it, it's not. It's not likely. But apparently, he he felt more. Uh, he felt like he was he had more of an advantage if his victims were were bound, right? And also. His victims were, what, half his age, right? Yeah, roughly. Okay, so I think he was afraid of fighting one of these young people unless the unless the, the young person was, was bound and gagged. Right. But that that's that's the MO of many a serial killer is the, the pleasure of inflicting your will upon someone who's helpless. Yes. Uh, well, I, we should also add somebody who didn't consent to that. If you consent to that and not being killed, but if you consent to being tied up and having someone dominate you, that's an entirely different thing. Well, it is. It's what they thought they were signing on for. Right. Now, it is interesting to note that nobody else who knew who knew Ronald Dominique, they've never heard him mention, mention anything about dating other gay men or anybody at all. In fact, several people who knew him said that he was a loner and an outcast. He didn't really have any friends, like friend friends. I mean, it's different to be friendly with your neighbors, but it's another thing to have friends. 
one former roommate told a newspaper that he didn't have many friends and he didn't keep friends. So he didn't have anybody close enough to him to maybe figure out what was going on. You know, like somebody who would be like, huh, why are you, oh, look, I, I found out that you had this body in your garage. You know, there's nobody close enough to him to figure out that something was wrong. No, serial killers uh, don't normally have peers. No, but some of them do have families. That 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 has happened. Um, now I could know I could find no official source confirming that Ronald Dominique suffered any health conditions at all. So it is unclear if he's telling the truth or not. But it wouldn't surprise me if he was faking a disability. And I just want to say, if you if you are a person who fakes a disability, you're a bad person. You're a bad person, and you're hurting people who are actually disabled. Yes. Now, Ronald Dominique has been compared to Andre Chikatilo. Uh, he's a Russian serial killer that was known as the Rostov Ripper. He was a school teacher in Russia, and he killed over 50 people. I'm also going to note here that, like Ted Bundy, Ronald Dominique faked having a disability to make him seem harmless. The Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, was another was another person who blended into the community seamlessly and was considered a helpful neighbor. Uh, as for Ronald Dominique, there was no trial. In September of 2008, he pled guilty to about he pled guilty to eight counts of first degree murder and sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. About 30 relatives of the victims attended the sentencing hearing. The brother of one of the victims told him, I hope that hell finds you fast. And perhaps hell has found him fast because today Ronald Dominique is a guest of the state and currently serving his sentence in Angola prison, and I hope it's miserable for him. Yeah, it very, very likely is. I also need to mention that the family of David Mitchell have never accepted that David's death was accidental, even though they never... Um, they insisted that he was not involved in anything high risk, but they think that he was hitchhiking and got picked up by Ronald Dominique. And we always want to remind our listeners that every life that is stolen by someone like Ronald Dominique had value and they had people who cared about them. And I'm very certain that the, the lives of murder victims have a lot more value than the murderer, than the murderer him or herself. Right. I mean, yes. And, and at the very least, the murderer deserves punishment. Yes, at the very least, they deserve punishment. I also want to go on record as saying that I don't think that these people can actually be rehabilitated. I don't think they'll ever be fit to be in society amongst us who don't do these things. And I really don't like it when people think they can be fixed. You know, they like if uh, somebody like looks at somebody like that, like Ronald Dominique and says, oh, I can fix them. No, you can't. Serial killers to become the kinds of inmates who might try to pretend like they have found God. Okay? Right. Yeah. And some people get fooled by that. Okay. Even though they've never been to church in their lives, they want to carry Bible support. Right. And I guarantee you this, that's. God sees right through those people. 
and it does not matter how much you praise God in a prison cell or in a church or at your home. That if you're actually rejecting God through your actions, you've made your choice. Right. Now, I already mentioned some comparisons that you can make between Ronald Dominique and other infamous killers. But it is important to note that he fits a larger pattern of serial killers. He blended into a community. His neighbors never saw him dragging bodies to their car or to his car, right? And they probably didn't know about his arrest record either. He has a record of escalating behavior. These guys always start small and then once they get away with it, they commit bigger crimes, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, it's like, it's like their way of, of, advancing their their hobby right and he selected victims from marginalized communities as many serial killers do uh not every serial killer does this a lot of them do though a lot of them they take people who won't be missed because society has deemed them as disposable and we really as a society need to be better about that yeah we're always going to advocate for that I'd like a, a good example of how a, a serial killer will advance their hobby, for example, is, let's say, for example, uh, someone who wants to run a 5K, well, they're going to start off running just a half mile, you know, half, half kilometer, and build up their, build up their tolerance. That's true. And do, do more, do more and more. It's, it's basically the same principle. Right. Now, while he was in police custody, he gave a full confession, and plenty of serial killers love to confess. They want someone to share their fascination with, and having rape and murder as a hobby isn't like, you know, collecting stamps, or in my case, I collect Pops figures, so can't, you know, that those are easy things to find other people to share your interest in. Um, but serial killers can't really do that as easily except with a police detective when they've been caught right or or, or, or an fbi it, investigator yeah like in the case of ed kemper i mean they learned a lot because apparently he just wouldn't shut up once he had the attention of the fbi so yeah back in back in the old days when when the serial killer or the the rapist or the child molester would just go way too far yeah and get into tmi uh, when, you know, an investigator would, would just hear enough of it and has heard more than he or she needs to know, well, the beating would start. Right, exactly. And I, I can't see I blame them because that's a, that's a case of this, of this narcissistic sociopath trying to get into your head and uh, trying to inflict their perverted pleasure upon you since they know they can't kill you or physically harm you at that point they so, want to mentally harm you. yeah they're trying to mentally harm you and it's perfect I, th I think it's a perfectly normal reaction for an investigator to beat the living crap out of one of these psychos you know well thank you for that very strong opinion well, G, G. Gordon Liddy, when he had his radio show, he used to talk about that, about what I, what I just said, you know. 
when he was an FBI agent. In the end, Ronald Dominique was absolute, absolutely linked to eight murders, and he confessed to 15 more, which law enforcement believes that he did because he provided details that only the killer would know, which sounds like a, like a classic uh, detective novel, right? Yeah. yeah. The predators of our society want to be trusted, and they want to be seen as non-threatening until they can drop the act, and by then it's usually too late. That full-on monster side is really only ever seen by the victims, and it's important to keep it to keep that in mind when you are reading about this sort of thing or watching a, a, a documentary about a serial killer, true crime. I mean, we can read about this and discuss it all day long, but you will never actually see that side of someone unless you are very, very unlucky. You know, unless you're very, very unlucky, you will never actually see it in action. Yes, it, it's it's when you're at the the secondary crime scene. Yeah, that they can do anything they want. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's unfortunate in this case, uh, many an unfortunate victim voluntarily went to the secondary crime scene. Yeah, yeah. Where the murderer has all the time they want and isolation. Yeah. And you know, this is a sort of story that makes you doubt your neighbors. It really does. And it's a strong reminder that you really never know who's living next door to you. You really don't know, do you? No. 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 You know, and I also think about things like that uh, that guy in Ohio who had those three women in his basement, um, Errol, Errol Castro. They He had them captured in that house for years. Years. You know? Yeah. And then finally they, they were able to make their way to the front of the house and get the attention of a neighbor and the whole story just broke wide open i mean it's it's so creepy to think about yeah it's reminiscent of that really good movie you saw a couple weeks ago the black phone oh yeah the black phone that was a great movie i'm no spoilers though but guys listeners listen listen to me listeners if you've not seen the black phone you need to go see it it's very good however be warned there's like it's not afraid to show violence in like this this way that's just um, brutally reminiscent of childhood. Yeah, it's a period, uh, sep- late, what, late 70s? Yeah, late 70s. Movie that has, it has got some Stranger Things vibes to it. Yeah, it's got some Stranger Things vibes to it. Um, it's got, you know, some violence. Uh, no dead animals, though, in case anybody was wondering about that. And there's no actual killing scene, so. There is. Oh, wait, there is. No, you're right. My, my mistake. It's sorry. just not the kind you would expect. That's all I want to say. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I should rephrase that. There's no children, actually. There's there's no there's nothing that shows actual children being killed in this movie. That's all I'm going to that, That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, the last thing I did want to mention, though, is that, you know, I want to go back to the thing about the shoes missing off the victims for just a moment. I think he was taking them as trophies, which is actually quite clever because what would you expect to find in a man's closet but men's shoes? Yes, but but that many shoes would be suspicious if it's a man's closet, unless it is a collection of Nike shoes, <laughs> which you will find with... You know, many men of the 20s, 30s, or even the 40s, and especially professional athletes. That's true. 
and you know former college athletes. That's true. But at a glance, I mean, if you go into somebody's closet and you just look at the shoes, I might just think, huh, you got a lot of shoes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, women that, I mean, you talk about Nikes and men who collect those. I mean, there's women who collect designer shoes. It's not, it's, yeah. it, nobody thinks twice about women having a lot of shoes, but hey, you know, same thing for men, right? Like maybe you shouldn't judge somebody by the size of their shoe closet. But maybe you should. Huh. And those are my final thoughts. Brian, do you have anything to add before we wrap up? Well, there's always something odd about a serial killer. But but keep in mind, we're talking about less than uh, a fraction of a percentage point of the population of our country. Exactly. You see. But there's there seems to be enough of them where... At any given time, there's quite possibly one in any metro, at least one in any metropolitan area. So you have to be careful of very, very odd behavior, and to make sure that you, you you never go to the secondary crime scene, or at least try not to. Right, um, you know, going to someone's place, the moment you met them is not always a good idea. That's also true. You see, uh, you know, get, get to know these people better. I mean, at the very least, uh, you don't really know if they, if they have a spouse or not. Right. When you're getting with these people after you first meet them, you see. And, and another thing, uh, if you think you're about to go to a secondary crime scene, do anything and everything to resist and escape, fight, okay? Because your best chance of survival is if you escape the primary crime scene where the assailant does not have much time to do anything. Exactly. See, even risk getting stabbed, risk getting shot, because if you're going to be harmed, you're better off getting harmed at the primary crime scene. Because then they might not want to even take you. Yeah, they right. might they may get scared and, 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 and run and they are nervous right. when they attempt to, to commit to commit this crime. And and then if you do if you do go with someone and you first meet them to their house, uh, be wary, be observant. Don't let this person disable you in any way and constantly uh, no, a, a means to escape. And you know, when you when you're in that other person's house, you even look to see if there's any weapons around him that you might be able to save yourself with. But but have a way out always. And at least in this day and age, you can send you, you can send a friend your location on your phone. You can do that, so they can have your location data at the very least. Yeah, that's true. As long as your cell phone's on and it's with you. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So, so try yeah. not to get separated from your cell phone. Those tracking apps, it, 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 they, they typically only work if your phone is on. That's also true. And then if your phone is turned off, it just show, it shows the last location. That is also true. That's a good reminder. Thanks for, thanks for that reminder. All right, everybody. So next week on the podcast, we will be discussing the murders of three teenage boys whose killer who may be behind bars, but has not been officially found yet. So until then, 
be safe, be kind. Remember that we're all human beings, that you can't fix serial killers, and don't park next to vans. And if it's dark, it's dangerous, and you do not feel safe, don't be there in the first place. And if you're talking to law enforcement in an official capacity, and you are not the victim or a witness to a crime, lawyer up.